Amen. You guys may be seated. Well, as uh, you are perhaps well aware, we are in the middle of our series through First Peter titled Sojourners. Uh, as we are going through this series, uh, you've heard a lot of things in terms of what Peter is telling us in regards to how we're to live. Uh, he's talked through some things about our status as citizens of another kingdom. He's talked through how to live as a holy life. And really what I hope that you see, particularly in the middle of the current uh, climate we are in our country and in our world, that Peter is saying that as Christians, we live in a distinctively different way. We live in a way that sets us apart from the rest of the world. And as he continues today in 1 Peter chapter 2, he's going to continue to show us that we live in such a way that sets us apart because we are a holy priesthood that has been established by God. We are a holy priesthood that has been established by God to live in this world and to do ministry. And so as we move into the text, uh, first I do want to make a note of our time of giving. Uh, if you feel led to give, uh, you can of course give online. Uh, that's always an option for you. I also want to make note that this is typical where we take of our tithes and offerings during the service. Uh, we are not doing that. Uh, you've probably heard of this thing called COVID. It's why we all wear a mask. Um, I'm sure you're well aware of that at this point. But uh, if you would like to give physically, you can give to our deacons who will be out front. Uh, they'll be available to take of your tithes and offerings as well. So I want to encourage you to, as you feel led to give, give in either way. Those all fine with us. No real difference to our purposes. Uh, now as we begin, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 4. Uh, as we finished up last week, Pastor Brian finished up the last half of chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2. And as we begin this, if you would, would you stand and read God's word with us? Beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laid in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we are thankful for you today. We are thankful for the grace that you've shown us. We're thankful for you calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Father, you have brought life to us. Thank you for this gift of salvation. And Father, we pray as we study the text today that you would make your word known to us. As we look at these passages, as we look at these scriptures, would you reveal the full truth of these verses to us? May you show us not only that we've been called out, but show us our purpose. Show us what it is we're to do since we are the called out ones. Father, make clear your purposes and your ways to us so that we may live a life that brings honor and glory to you. Father, we are thankful for the things you're doing in our lives, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. So as I said, we are looking here in 1 Peter, and we see this idea of a holy priesthood has been established here. And as we begin, our first point today is that we, as this holy priesthood, are offering spiritual sacrifice. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
as we begin, indeed, as we see this idea of a holy priesthood, and you're going to see that throughout this section of Scripture, as we think on this idea that we are holy priests, we are offering spiritual sacrifices. We are offering spiritual sacrifices with our lives. Beginning with this idea in verse 4 that we came to Him, Jesus. We came to faith in Christ. As we come to Him, we come to faith through His shed blood, trusting in Him. And by placing our faith in Him, He brings us into this family, this holy priesthood. This living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, good and precious, chosen and precious. You see, Peter is referencing this idea of Jesus being condemned by the people of the world. As we look back in the gospel stories, Peter very well saw these things play out. He was there. We see that Jesus was condemned and cast away. That the the people who should have accepted him as Messiah, the Jewish people, rejected him. That the Gentiles who could have trusted in him rejected him in that time. And he was crucified, dead and buried, an innocent man. That he was cast down, yet he was chosen and precious before the sight of the Lord. You see, this cornerstone that we've referenced, we're going to see reference throughout this book. While we've seen cornerstone, you're going to hear it a lot during this book. This cornerstone, this pillar of the entire foundation of our salvation was rejected by man, but chosen by God. This one that we come and place our faith in, he then builds us up like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You see this idea of living stones. You you look at a stone, you know, stone's not alive, right? Like some of you probably have pet rocks. You may still have pet rocks. They're not real pets, okay? Like just so we're on the same page. Stones are dead. Stones don't do anything. And Peter gives us this idea, this, 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 this living stone, He's talking about something remarkable, that he's brought life to something that is dead. He is making a comparison to our spiritual condition before Christ. That Christ coming into this world, bringing life to us, that boom, so you pay attention and stay awake, right? Christ comes into this world and brings life to those that were dead. Let's make no mistake about it as we wrestle with our spiritual condition before Christ. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians tells us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were not doing okay, we were not good, we were not doing all right. We were dead. And we did not need revival because we never had life. We needed an awakening. We needed to come to life. And as Peter tells us this, we became like living stones. He brought life to that which was dead, you and I. And as he brings life to us, we're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We, as individual believers of God, are being built up as a spiritual house. Let's understand the context of whom Peter is writing to. He's writing to a group of people who have perhaps for their entire lives worshipped in temples. Whether you're Jew or Greek, whatever God you chose to serve, what did these people do? They went to temples and offered sacrifices. And Peter is saying, you don't need to go to the temple to offer sacrifice. You are the temple, and you are the one being offered as a sacrifice. This brings to mind you know, uh, Romans 12.1. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, right? That what Peter is telling us is our very lives, the things we do, who we are, is meant to be sacrificed and given to the Lord. Everything we do is intended to be a holy sacrifice. He tells us here that we're to be a holy priesthood. This isn't the last time that he's going to come to this phrase in this book. This holy priesthood, we're set apart. He's making some callbacks to the Old Testament here. Perhaps as you've studied Scripture, you've seen some of these things. The priests in Israel, the ones who administer the sacrifices... They were the ones who helped the people of God connect with God to receive forgiveness. They were the ones who were the intermediaries between God and man. And what we see Peter establishing is that God has said that there is no need for intermediaries between his chosen people and God because Jesus has made a way for us to have that relationship. But this idea of holy priesthood is that he is establishing a holy priesthood that is a church 
that its sole purpose is to bring reconciliation to those who are far from God. He said, you as believers, you and I, those that are now living stones, we don't need anyone to help us connect with God because Jesus has made a way for us. The world around us, who are those dead stones who have not had life brought in, they need someone to bring reconciliation to them. You see, our purpose, our mission, what we do in offering spiritual sacrifice is to seek to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to people around us so they may receive this free gift of grace, this gift of salvation. That as God has said that there is no need for sacrifices in this time because I have made the ultimate sacrifice through Jesus Christ, He has said the way we are going to do our holy priestly work is by giving ourselves to proclaim and demonstrate the good news to those that are far from Him. Our purpose, our very existence as Christians, as a church, is to provide reconciliation to those that were lost, to those that are lost. And as we think about this priestly work, I hope you feel the weight of that. I hope you feel the weight that you and I exist to bring hope and light to those who are in darkness. That you and I have the distinct pleasure to live and risk all for the name and honor of King Jesus so that the world may know His name. The things we do where we live, work, and play matter. They have meaning and purpose and value because the things that we do are to provide reconciliation for those that are far from God. And so as we begin Peter with this section, he shows us that we're offering spiritual sacrifice, that we give our lives for the name and honor of King Jesus because he's established us as holy priests to walk in his footsteps. Now Peter continues and, and gives us uh, some further insight in verses 6 through 8. That he continues that not only are we to offer spiritual sacrifice, but we are centered in Christ. Look with me at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I just want to stop right here and let you sit upon that. He's referencing the book of Isaiah here. He's pointing back to some scripture that we've already seen in the Old Testament. And this phrase, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. He's referencing Jesus. He's talking about this stone, this anchor of our faith. He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, he's building out this idea of an anchor within our faith, one that we can hold to, who is forever faithful, who we can forever trust, one who will always be with us. Now, I know as I've been talking, I've said this word cornerstone several times, and you're perhaps asking like me, well, what's a cornerstone, right? What, what is this actually referencing? Well, in, in building terms, a cornerstone is a piece of the foundation, a, a corner part of the building that everything else hinges upon. In other ways you could use it, it can be translated as keystone. If you've ever built an arch or a bridge, there's one stone, one piece of that bridge that helps hold it all together. If you remove this piece, the whole thing falls apart. Perhaps put it in terms that you and I can understand. Imagine a Jenga block tower, and it's all balanced on one block. And if we pull that block, the whole thing comes tumbling. That singular block is Christ. You see, Peter is building out this idea that central to our lives is Christ. That for us as believers, that's obvious. You and I go, well, of course he's central to our lives. Of course he's supposed to be central. We understand this. We get this. We believe this. It's true that he's our anchor in good times and bad. That he's what we build our lives on. That he's who we trust in. That we know that should these things, should these things be wrong, should Christ not be who he says he is, that we've got nothing to hope in. That we trust him fully and completely. Yet this verse would also give us the context that the world around us understands that there's a cornerstone they're looking for. And maybe you've seen this just in, in our lives, perhaps before you came to Christ, or perhaps you see this in the lives of friends, family, neighbors, 
That as we look at around in our world with people who are not trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior, they're looking for a cornerstone, aren't they? They're looking for something to hold tight to, something to anchor themselves to. For some people, they anchor themselves in relationships. Whether it's friends or intimate relationships, they try to anchor themselves in something that has permanence and value for them. Others try to anchor themselves in experiences and pleasure. Others try to anchor themselves in this thing of money, right? If I get enough money, if I have enough things, I'll have satisfaction. I'll have life. You know, that explains why people leave a house they pay too much for and a car that they can't afford to go to a job that they hate so they can keep doing this cycle, right? That this is why we do it, because we cling to something to give us hope and life. The entire world has, is, does this. Throughout history, mankind has done this. We try to cling to things and we call things our cornerstone. And let's be true and honest with one another. Every single thing that we can anchor ourselves to beyond Christ will fail us. Your money will fail you. Eventually you'll run out. Relationships will fail you. Ask anyone who's married. Let's be honest with one another. Marriage is a joy. It is a gift from God. And some days you think, I'm lucky to be alive. The reality of it is that these things that we try to anchor ourselves to the world will fail us. Yet there is a cornerstone that has been laid, perfectly positioned, that was rejected by mankind, yet was chosen and precious in God's eyes. That cornerstone is Jesus. That He will never shift. That foundation is firm. That He will never fail us. We've never walked alone in this journey of life because He has been with us. In verse 7, and in verse, verse 7 and 8, really, Peter tells us what this means for us. Very bluntly, very straightforward. He says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. He says in verse 7 what he's getting to, this honor for you who believe. What he is telling us is that for those who trust in Christ as their cornerstone, who centered their life on Christ, that you are being honored by the Lord. That you've received an honor, a gift from God, that you get to spend your life walking and centered on Christ. That though the world tilts and tumbles around you, you have your balance because you are anchored in Christ. It is a gift and an honor to be a part of this chosen family of God. Yet, Peter contrasts that with those who do not believe. You see, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, we, we know this as we study Scripture, that not every person believes in Christ, right? That's why we talk about these people who are lost, who are far from God. They do not trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the very gospel of Christ, this cornerstone that has been presented to them, has become a stumbling block. That they've looked at the things of Christ and rejected it. They've looked at the world and can see that creation is greater than them and they've rejected it. That when we talk about people who are lost, we are not talking about people who have just not found their way. They have actively rejected the things of Christ. And the very core of the gospel is offensive to them. Now I know you hear that and you think, well, you know, I've got lost friends and, and they don't, they don't have any real problem with me being a Christian. And that's very well true. They may not have a problem with you being a Christian. But they have a fundamental problem with themselves becoming a believer. Because they've actively chosen to reject the grace of God. He tells us that they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see, those that are lost, they look at these verses and they mean nothing. They look at these words, the very living Word of God, 
that the Spirit of the Lord communicated to the writers of Scripture. They look at this precious, holy word and say, it has no value and meaning to me. That it has no ability to guide and direct my life. That it has no ability to shape who I am. That it has no power over me. You see, they actively choose to turn away from the word. And if I can get off on an aside, and you guys know the last time I went off on an aside, I called a few people fools, and um, if you haven't listened to that sermon, you should. It was fun. Um, If I can get off on an aside here, if you are here and you would identify yourself as a believer and you don't have a love for the Word, then you are on a downward spiral to apostasy. That if you are a believer here and you don't love the Word, as in you want to read it, you have a desire to understand it. I don't mean that you have to be an incredible reader or a scholar or anything. There are some days I wonder, can I actually read when I read the Bible? Do I understand what's going on? And I've got a degree and a half in Bible study. But what I do know is that I know that I can't fathom my life without studying the Scriptures. That I know that if I think that who I am is is not good enough, I can't imagine how bad I would be if I wasn't studying the Scriptures. If I think I don't have enough wisdom and guidance to live my life, I can't imagine how lost I would be without studying the Scriptures. You see, if you're here and you're a Christian and you can't echo those words, then you are in trouble. That if your faith is defined by what you get here on Sundays and whatever verse a minute you can get on the Christian radio station, you are in trouble. Your walk is failing. You are stumbling away from Christ. And your faith is weak right now. And I say that not to condemn you because we've been there. If we're all honest with each other, we've had those moments, right? Some of you give me a head shake. Yeah, you've been there. Some of you are too proud to say that, but you're lying to us. You've been there too. We've all had those moments. And what has happened, either that A, God has brought himself into us and said, wake up, pay attention. Or those around us have graciously said, we need to lean into this. We need to get ourselves more centered, more focused upon the things of God. And so if I can offer you an aside today, if you're saying my life is tough, times are hard, well, let's be honest, I need you to have a well-worn Bible. This thing's eat up. This is over 10 years old. Brian tells me I need a new one. But I bring this, I use this, I let you see this, not because I'm awesome, please don't think that. Because this Bible is beat up because it's used. This Bible is beat up and needs to be replaced because it has been ran through. I don't say that to toot my own horn because I'm not that awesome. Please don't hear that. But because I know that I have to have an utter dependency upon God if I'm to do anything in this world. That I have to have an utter dependency upon what God is doing through His Word to shape me and turn me into the man that I believe He wants me to be. That you and I are going to be nothing. That we will be powerless to do anything in this world for the glory of God if we are not anchored in His Word. And so I urge you, do not be like those who stumble because they disobey the Word. Do not be like those who stumble because they disobey the word. Rather, be like verse 9. See, in verse 9, we see that we're chosen to proclaim. Verses 9 and 10 show us these. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, verse 9, I think, gives us perhaps the the core of this book. You see, in in verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, Peter is building out our identity here. He is showing us who we're to be as followers of God. That he is clearly trying to establish that as a follower of Christ, you live and act in a certain way. This isn't legalism, but this is really him laying out the realities that if Christ has transformed you, you have been transformed. You are different. When he says a chosen race and a people of his own possession, that he's anchoring us in this mindset that we have been specifically chosen by God. We've used this word chosen several times, but I want to make sure you hear this. That before the foundations of the world... Before creation even began, God in His infinite wisdom, mercy, and kindness looked upon the timeline of history from the moment He said, let there be light, to the end of the book of Revelation when the new heavens and new earth have been established and Christ reigns eternally. And He looked through that entire timeline and looked at every person who had ever lived and looked down upon some of us and said, you will be mine. You will be mine. Out of the billions and billions of people that have lived on this earth through the generations, you and I are a part of that chosen family of God. Not because of anything that you and I did, not because of anything that we had to offer, but because of the free gift of grace that God was willing to provide. He looked upon the billions and billions of people of this world and said, you will be mine. You are a chosen, priceless possession. That you have been chosen by God. So your identity is rooted that you are not some cast off, some stray Your identity is rooted in the fact that God willingly and freely called you His child. And if I can continue to get off on a soapbox, and I tend to get in trouble with these, so the complaint line will begin right here after the service. That for too many of us as Christians, we live our lives thinking that we're the red-headed stepchild. We live our lives thinking that we are not good enough, that we don't have it together, that we are not worthy of this grace of God. And while, yes, in some measure that is true, yes, that is true in the fact that we cannot be as holy as God desires us to be without His grace and mercy, God chose you. God chose you and I to be His children, to be His holy priesthood. So let me be clear about something. You might be here sitting thinking, I don't have a whole lot to offer. Well, the God of the universe who set the stars in the sky and set the boundaries of the land and sea would beg to differ because he chose you to be his child. Now, one, Peter would tell us that we're chosen, that we are a chosen group. But two, there's a greater purpose behind that, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, You see, as he's trying to establish our identity, he's rooting this out that we are chosen by God to be his children. We are chosen by God to be set apart. But we've also been chosen by God to proclaim the good news of our Lord and Savior. Specifically with this royal priest of this holy nation, he sets our identity apart from the world. He says, you are different. You are distinct. And you have a purpose, that priesthood we've talked about. That you are intended to provide reconciliation to the world. Don't believe me? Well, he says, why has I done this? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has chosen you and I to proclaim the good news of the one who has saved our soul. That's an amen, I think. He has chosen you and I to proclaim the good news of the one who has seen us cross from death into life. The one who has taken us from darkness into his marvelous light. 
And so, dear Christian, I would tell you, as you're thinking, perhaps I don't have much to offer, I'm not a gifted speaker, I'm not a natural evangelist, what the Lord would tell you is to quit feeling sorry for yourself. This doesn't weigh upon you. If salvation was contingent upon what you and I could do, no one's getting saved. Let's just be honest. But salvation is contingent upon God Himself moving in a mighty way, making His presence known so that people would see, hear, and respond to the goodness of His name. You see, the beauty of this process is that we are called to proclaim and to plant seeds of the gospel. We are called to proclaim the gospel and to water those seeds that are there. Yet who provides the harvest? The Lord. So I want you to hear that, and I hope and I pray that that's a freeing truth for you, that as we wrestle with this calling we have to proclaim the good news of the gospel, that we are merely called to proclaim. By proclaiming, we are planting seeds. By proclaiming, we are watering seeds that are already there. Nowhere in this does it tell us that we are responsible for the harvest. Because the one who is responsible for that is the Lord Himself. And so this means, dear Christian, that no, you're not a gifted evangelist. No, you don't know what to say all the time. No, you're not sure about how to answer any of those questions. But you are a child of God who's been chosen to be a holy priest, sent out to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has brought you from death into life. You see, I believe Peter is getting to something here that you and I, no matter what skills we have, what giftings we have, no matter what answers we have, the one thing we can always anchor ourselves on and proclaim to those around us is the truth of our testimony. That if you were to speak to people who've known you over the years and share the grace what God has done in your life, though they would perhaps disagree on the reasons why you have changed, what they could say is you were this way and now you are that way. And there is a clear, distinct difference. That you are equipped to proclaim at minimum that gospel message that you were once lost, but now you are found. You see, in verse 10, he tells us, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were lost, but now you are found. You know, if you go back and look at the Gospels and you just look at how often Jesus talked about this idea of lost and found. He spent a whole chapter in Luke 15 talking about this. The parable of the lost coin. Widow loses a coin and what happens? She turns the house upside down to find this coin. Parable of the lost sheep. We have this shepherd who has lost a sheep and it says that he leaves his 99 sheep to go find the one. He tells these guys to hold tight. I've got to go find this one who's wandered away. In the story of the prodigal son, we see this son who has told his father, essentially, I hope you die so I can have my stuff, run away, live his life recklessly. And when he returns, the father says, all is forgiven. Who, he who was lost is now found. That he spends this effort to proclaim the good news that those who are lost can be found. That you and I, as Peter says here, were once lost but are now found. Why? Because someone, sometime, had the courage to proclaim the good news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. And through trusting in His shed blood, His death, burial, and resurrection, we can have life eternal. For many of us, we probably can point to that person who shared that gospel with us. Just quick show of hands, right? Who can tell you the person who led them to faith? Their name? You know them? Who can think about that day? Some of you even remember the exact date and time, right? That the reality of it is that we were once lost. We can look back on that time. 
that I can look back on my life and go, in that dorm room in 2007 at Charleston Southern, Jonathan Falco proclaimed the good news of the gospel to me, and I trusted Christ. That the, the beautiful part about that is that I can see that once I was lost, but now by God's grace I am found. And that same gospel message still has the power to save. Those same words proclaimed to me in 2007 are the same words that you are hearing today. It is because the gospel has power to save. And so, as Peter would tell us, we are chosen to proclaim this gospel message. That we have been set apart and specifically called out to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world. That it is not something that we do, it is simply who we are as believers. We are chosen priests sent out on mission. That this is a part of who we are, this is our very identity. Now Peter doesn't leave us there, he says this comes with a cost. That if you're going to live life as this holy priest, there's something you have to do. You see, the next two verses, he tells us that we're called to holiness. We are called to holiness. Look with me at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. A day of visitation. I'm getting excited and preaching extra words. You see, Peter tells us that there is something that we must do as believers. That yes, we're called to be holy, but this requires a conscious action. This requires us to specifically, intentionally pursue holiness as if our lives depend on it. Because if I may be honest, our very lives do depend upon our pursuit of holiness. You see, in verse 11, he starts with this negative perspective. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So first, he reminds us that we're beloved. We are chosen children of God. And then he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, remember, your anchor is not in this world, that you are a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, that this place is not your home. You are merely passing through into where your true home is. He says this is to give us a proper framework as he goes into this, this word, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You see, Peter understands something about the, the human experience, about our lives. Uh, he recognizes that though we are called to be holy priests, though in Christ's grace as we grow in Him, we become more and more like Him, that is we become holier and holier each day, to put it very simply, we ain't perfect yet. And I know all the spouses are going, amen. Mine's back in the nursery going, yep, you know it. But here's the reality of our lives. We are not perfect yet. And because we have not received that perfection that will come when we enter into glory with God, we have to wage war against our sin. Because the, the very truth of it is, is that our sin is waging war against us. One of the things that we have to recognize in this world is that we as image bearers of God, we have Christ dwelling in us, that we are in a spiritual battle. That the enemy, that is Satan and his forces, he's the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the power of the principalities, like he is the one who is out to get us. When we trust in Christ, we put a target upon our back saying, come and get me Satan. Now you might be here and you might say, that's enough talk about spiritual warfare, I don't really believe in that, and that's, a, that's okay if you don't. You're the first one Satan's going to get. Because here's the reality of it. We are in a war. And just as you look at any military unit, any group like that, when they know they're in a war, they don't play games. They wear the proper gear. They go in the proper formations. They know what they're supposed to do when they're in combat. And many of the most successful ones recognize every situation is a combat situation. 
And in our lives, every single day, we are in combat for our very souls. Because I can assure you, regardless of what you think about spiritual warfare, what I do know is that Satan would love nothing more than to wreck and destroy your life. That is a fact. You can count on that. That certainly it may not be Satan himself coming after you, but you can rest assured that Satan and his forces want you to stumble and fall. And because we are imperfect sinners who are living in this world, our sin will rise up and it will catch us and trip us up. And that is why just as our sin would strive to wage war against our soul, we must also wage war against our sin. John Owen once remarked, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that is the truest statement that I've ever heard. That if we are not actively fighting against our sin, pursuing holiness, choosing holiness, we will stumble and fall. We will stumble and fall. I'll tell you that you hear this and you might think that, you know, hey, pastors and people like that have it all together. Um, you, You probably don't run in the same circles that I do and hanging out with pastors, but if you could hear the stories of these holy men of God, people whom I've looked up to for years, and how far some of these men have fallen, it would shock you. This isn't to disparage anyone or speak ill of anyone, but some of these people are true heroes of the faith, in my mind, and then they fell. And I think the fundamental reality of this is that we are not as strong as Samson. We are not as godly as David. We are not as wise as Solomon. Yet each and every one of them fell. And so you and I must be very careful to pay attention to our spiritual health. We must be very careful to intentionally pursue holiness and create boundaries to ensure that our hearts and minds are protected. Now Peter tells us that there is this war that is being waged against our souls, that we must be on guard, be on watch. But he also tells us there is a benefit to this. There's a positive to this fact. We are in a spiritual war. You see in 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, Peter says that you're in the middle of the spiritual battle, and he gives us this reminder to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That is, live in such a way that even those who don't believe in God would testify to your goodness. That those who are as far from God as you can get, who have rejected God, remember, would say, yeah, that Christian's a pretty good person. I don't believe the things they believe, but they live a life that is full of integrity and honor. They live a life that is different than others around us. They're the person in office you call when you need something done because you know they're going to do it. They're the person you talk to when you need encouragement. They're the person that you know you can trust, no questions asked, because they are someone of integrity. You see, a benefit of this reality of being aware that there is a war going on around us is that we're on guard. And you can't sneak attack someone who's paying attention. And the truth of that is that means we're going to win these battles more often than not. By God's grace and mercy, we will wage war against our sin. We will defeat our sin. We will then become holier and holier. And we will live in such a way that it sets us apart from those who don't believe. And even those who don't believe will look upon us and go, there is something that is distinctively different about this person. Perhaps you've had those conversations with people where they say, you know, hey, I just, I don't know what's different about you. Everyone else in our office is this way, but you're over here doing this, and why? There's something different. That it, It's true that as we look at our lives, we've had those conversations, those moments. The point of that isn't so that you and I get glory and honor, 
because no one cares if we're glorified and honored. That's not the point of this. The point of this is that God himself would receive the glory and honor. You see, in the last half of verse 12, that we're to keep our conduct honorable so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, the reminder that Peter gives us to keep watch on our souls, to wage war against sin, is not only for our own present holiness and sanctification, but for the future salvation of those around us. Because when the world sees our conduct and how we fight to stay pure and holy, when they see how we behave in a way, because we know we're not working to honor a boss or a company, but we're working to honor God and glorify Him, They see these things and they say there is something distinctly different about you. And our conduct demonstrates the gospel of Christ. And the point of demonstrating the gospel is so that we might proclaim the gospel. What happens after that conversation of, you're different. There's something that you stand apart from the people here. What is our immediate answer? Well, you take that softball and you hit a line drive over center field and say, it's because I'm a follower of Christ. Let me tell you how I became one. Let me share my story with you. Let me have that conversation so that you might know who it is has saved my soul and set me apart. And so as we look at what Peter has established that he has said that there is a cost to being a holy priest, that it requires holiness, that it requires us to wage war on sin. It requires us to sacrifice and stand firm on the things that we believe in. And that's a true cost. There's also reality that, as he points to, that there is going to be a last day. There's going to be a last day when Christ would return and we will be held account for our sins. Now, The good news for those who are found in Christ, our account of sins will be perhaps something like this. You've done this, this, this. You remember that? I don't know if you've forgotten this. Hey, do you think about this? Did you remember this? Did you do that? And that whole list will then be wiped away because you are mine. Those sins, that shame was paid for by the shed blood of Christ. Those sins are forgotten and forgiven. Welcome home, my good and faithful servant. Yet, for those of us, those in this room perhaps, who have not trusted Christ, who are not found in Him, that list of sins will go on and they'll be cast aside into eternal separation from God. You see, the, 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 the difficult, the hard thing about hell It's not that it's this place of torture and pain and torment, though I'm sure it's not a pleasant place. You're not getting an Airbnb there. But the true torture that is present there is that you spend eternity separated from God knowing that a single decision of trusting Christ could have changed everything. You spend eternity separated from God knowing that there could have been a better way, that there was a better way. And so what I would put before you today, my hope and my prayer is for every man, woman, and child in this room, anyone who is listening online, anything like that, that what you have heard today is that there is hope. And that hope's name is Jesus. That you can have life eternal through Him that you can look upon Him and receive forgiveness of your sins by crying out to Him and saying, Father, forgive me. That today you can have eternal life. That you can be a part of this holy priesthood. And that you can one day, as a citizen of the new heavens and new earth, gather around the throne with the saints from all generations and sing the very words of Cornerstone. That this is what is available to us. But it only takes for us to cry out to God and say, forgive me. And so as our band comes back up, we're going to have a few moments of silent prayer. And this is an opportunity for you and I to cry out to God. 
If you're here and a believer, this is for you to cry out and say, Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Continue to make me holy so that I may live a life that brings honor and glory to your name. Perhaps you're here and you're not a believer. This is your chance for you to look upon the Lord and say, Forgive me for my sins and trespasses. Forgive me for my inadequacies and shortcomings. Let me see your pure and holy face today, Lord. Let me receive that gift of eternal life. That this is what's available to us. So here in the next few moments, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in prayer. We'll have a few moments of quiet prayer for you and I to interact with God. And then I'll lead us in a closing prayer and we'll continue our time of worship through song. So if you would, would you bow your heads with me and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you, we are coming as a humble, needy people. Father, we're humbled by the weight of our sin and shame. We're humbled by the ways that we failed. We're humbled by the way this world has treated us. But Father, we come hopeful that you hear us. We come hopeful that you care for us. We come hopeful, no, we come with confidence, Lord, that you can provide forgiveness for our sin and shame. So, Lord, we ask today for forgiveness of the sins and trespasses we've committed against you. Father, we ask for your mercy to be poured out upon us, to remind us of the truth that there is no, there's no sin too great, no, no shame too big that you cannot forgive. So we ask for forgiveness, Father. And as we ask for this forgiveness, I recognize there may be people here who have not trusted you, Lord. And I prayed that today would be the day that they would trust you. They would receive forgiveness of their sins and walk with you for eternity. Father, I pray for every man, woman, and child who is listening today. May our hearts respond to the beauty and power of the gospel. May we rest our lives and our hopes upon this cornerstone that is Christ Jesus. May we recognize that our hopes are built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, Christ's blood and righteousness. Because it is by these things that we are able to be saved. It is because of these things that we have verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake you made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, we trust in those truths that you've sent Jesus to make us righteous. So, Father, let us lean into that. Let us trust that. Let us walk in confidence in that. And may we make much of your name today. Lord, thank you for the things that you're doing in our lives. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.